Good evening, friends. Franz Weinschenk here to welcome you to this week's edition of Valley Writers Read. Two stories tonight, both of which have to do with the history of our times. The first is a memoir by Fresno author David Creighton. He'll be reading a story about World War II entitled War's Confluence, and then a fable, some might even call it a fairy tale, but with an important message by Bakersfield author Gary Hill entitled Hannah and the Magical Cuckoo Karoo. But first things first, let's get started listening to David Creighton read his story entitled War's Confluence. War's Confluence Helen, get down here. This is serious, my father yelled from the basement. Based on his tone of voice, my mother and older brother and I raced downstairs to his little workroom. A few months earlier, he had found a broken superheterodyne radio, salvaged and repaired it, and as we breathlessly arrived, was fine-tuning it to a station. He had just gotten the two tuning dials synchronized when a scratchy voice said, Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a day which will go down in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by the naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. My mother looked apprehensive and wiped her hands back and forth on her apron. Does this mean we're at war? I'm afraid so, my father said sadly. What about the Germans and Italians? My mother couldn't let it go. Yes, them too. They've all signed a mutual aggression pact, so if one is at war, they all are. Being just four, I asked, Daddy, what's war? Well, it usually starts when one country wants something another country has, or one country thinks their religious belief is correct, and that if you don't believe their way, you deserve to die. Remember how your brother had that tinker toy you wanted? And when he wouldn't give it to you, you started hitting him. Well, wars start the same way. What does Japan want from us? From my brother John, who was six. Japan believes in the Shinto religion, and we are Christians. As part of their religion, they believe they are superior to all other races, and their religion tells them that their emperor should rule the world. Japan is a small island nation with little resources. We have lots of land and space, and they want our natural resources. Couldn't we just pay them some money, my older brother interjected. I'm afraid it wouldn't satisfy them. Their real goal is to rule the world, and they've already subjugated a good portion of Southeast Asia. I was getting scared. Could they come here and hurt us? They could, but our country will do everything in its power to stop that from happening. Will you have to be a soldier, John asked. I sure hope not. I could see the fear in my mother's eyes. This was my first realization of war. Its shadow would fall on us for the next four years. Like today's war, young men left their homes never to return. Unlike today's wars, those of us back home were deprived of many things. I remember the rationing, blackouts, air raid drills, saving grease and tin cans and working in a victory garden. We felt as though we were participating and thought our sacrifices were helping the men on the front lines. 
A pall of fear hung over the country, but people's love for America was preeminent and patriotism ran high. Everybody wanted to help with the war effort. Our family was lucky. My father wasn't drafted. My younger brother had been born in May of 1941, and fathers with three children were given an exemption. Rain and lightning stabbed out of the night sky, silhouetting the three emaciated Filipinos, trying to slip their way noiselessly through the Philippine jungle. Made visible by the flash, they dove for cover. It was almost 2 a.m. on a moonless night in January of 1942. The mother carried a three-month-old baby in a sling around her neck. Her five-year-old daughter followed a heavy carry-all made of reeds on her back and held in place by a wide thong across her forehead. It contained all their belongings. She used a small palm frond to sweep the path behind her to try and cover their footprints in the wet trail. Even though it was dark, the heat and mosquitoes were oppressive. The trail, a narrow path in the underbrush, led to the next village. A road parallel in the trail would have been easier to navigate, but they were afraid of being caught by Japanese patrols. The overgrown foliage provided some cover. Vines covering the pathway felt like snakes as they slapped against their bare arms and legs. Some had thorns that tore the flesh. They had no light, and even if they had, wouldn't have dared used it. At times, the path was only a few feet from the road. Without a warning, the mother stopped and whispered emphatically in Tagalog, Down! Without thinking, Bertha dove to the ground and pulled rotting leaves and vegetation over her as a camouflage. Now she could hear the engines of the Japanese vehicles. Their headlights made patterns of light and dark through the bushes as they followed the curves of the road. Suddenly the headlights of the lead jeep hit Bertha. She froze. Insects and the dead leaves were crawling all over her body. Some sucked blood from the scratches on her legs. Mosquitoes buzzed angrily in her ears and nose. She felt a tentative touch on her foot. Her mind told her to scream, but she felt her mother's hand holding her tight. She stuck her other hand in her mouth to keep from crying out. She was afraid a muscle would twitch involuntarily and the snake would strike. She had to use all the willpower she could muster to keep from moving as the snake slowly slithered over her foot and legs. The baby was crying, but the mother muffled the noise with her free hand. The light left Bertha's body when the jeep turned the next corner. The Japanese soldiers spotted the village ahead and started shooting at the bamboo huts. Her mother whispered again, Bertha, get up and move as fast as you can. The gunfire will cover our noise. Bertha got to her feet and ran, the heavy carry-all on her back making running difficult. The vines caused her to stumble. Whenever she fell, she got up quickly and continued on. As quickly as it started, the gunfire stopped. The three bedraggled humans on the trail halted. In the stillness, they could hear the old men and women of the village begging for mercy. The Japanese showed none. They lined the older people up and took their time killing them by shooting them in non-essential parts until, tired of their sport, finally put them out of their misery. After what seemed like an eternity, the screams died off. Bertha's mother knew the younger woman had been segregated to the side as the soldiers had other uses for them. They, too, would be killed later. Bertha's mother sat down on the trail holding her newborn and cradling Bertha. Warm tears flowed, and her body was racked by quiet sobs. 
Bertha's grandparents had been left behind, and Bertha's aunt had agreed to stay and try to help the older people. The trio huddled together for more than an hour. Then, reluctantly, they got to their feet and pushed on. Two hours later, the first glow of a new day began to show in the east. Bertha's mother knew they would have little trouble with the soldiers now as they slept off their night of debauchery. With first light, the trail was more visible as they trudged on to the next village. Five-year-old Kent kept screaming, Daddy, Daddy, where are they taking us? It was the middle of June, 1942. Hush, Kent, we have to do what the soldiers tell us. His father was carrying Kent's younger sister and holding his hand. I want my teddy. Kent broke away from his father and ran back towards his bedroom. A young soldier swung his rifle butt and knocked Kent to the floor. I'm sorry, son, but you aren't allowed to take anything. Where are we going? To Tanforan. What's Tanforan? It's a concentration camp for Japanese. I'm not Japanese. I'm American. Just then a sergeant came over. Private, get these Japs into that deuce and a half and hurry it up or I'll put you on report. Yes, sir. With tears in his eyes, the private pushed the Ikeda family out of their tidy little bungalow and made them get in the big army vehicle. Little Kent kept crying. Daddy, Daddy, don't let them do this to us. That's our house. After he put up the tailgate, the private rushed over behind the house and threw up. The sergeant followed him. What's the matter, son? You a sissy? No, sir, but they are Americans just like us. Why are their rights being violated? Because those dumb slopeheads invaded Pearl Harbor and wiped out most of our Pacific fleet. But that wasn't these people. Yeah, but once a Jap, always a Jap, and we don't have time to watch them and make sure they don't sabotage our bridges, dams, and reservoirs. Why, just the other day we caught three of them taking pictures of the Golden Gate Bridge. Well, isn't that a natural thing to do if you're a tourist in San Francisco? I bet there were several hundred white Americans taking pictures at the same time. Son, I've had just about enough out of you. Now get over there and get those trucks loaded up, or I'm going to put you in for a court's martial. Kent Ikeda's family, along with their neighbors of Japanese descent, were taken to Tanforan. They were processed, stripped, and all of their civilian clothes confiscated. They were given a cursory physical, sprayed with sulfur in case they had lice, and made to dress in prison-style garb. For four years, they were forced to live in dormitories with hundreds of other Japanese Americans. Their personal property was taken by the government and sold off. By 1946, the war was over and things were returning to normal in the United States. I was in the fourth grade. One day, the principal brought a new girl into our class. She stood alongside the teacher. Class, we have a new student, Bertha Sanchez. Bertha is from the Philippines and doesn't speak English. She speaks some Spanish, but her native language is Tagalog. I'm going to assign three of you to help her learn English, reading, and math. I was one of those picked. I thought, oh no. But Bertha turned out to be a very fast learner. There was no doubt she was as smart as we were and knew a whole lot more about the world. As she learned to speak English, she told us stories about the war. We learned about her country, the kinds of food they ate, and some of their customs. Some of the customs seemed strange to us. One day I asked the teacher, why is the country called the Philippines using a P, but the people are Filipinos starting with an F? Very good question. Bertha, can you help us here? 
Bertha tried. The teacher interjected. Many of the languages in the Philippines don't have a letter F. As a result, the PH is used instead. Can you think of any other words in English that use the PH for an F? Hands went up all over, and the class came up with words such as phone, photograph, phosphorus, and eventually phooey. One day the teacher asked us to show how the war affected us. Most of our responses seemed pretty tame compared to Bertha's when she told about her narrow escape from the Japanese patrol. We thought she was making it up, but after she showed us the scars on her arms and legs, she was our heroine. By 1949, the war was fading into the background. I was in the seventh grade and had been sent to Lawrence Elementary in the southeast section of San Mateo. This was a temporary move until a new middle school, College Park, could be completed. I lived in a working-class, multicultural neighborhood, but Lawrence, only a mile away, was surrounded by minorities and poor families. Out of this melting pot came a guy who seemed very nice. His name was Kentakita. He sat right across from me in class. When he opened his desk, I saw a baseball and mitt. Hey, Kent, I whispered, hoping not to get caught. What position do you play? Pitcher. I watched the teacher. When he turned to write something on the blackboard, I whispered again. I play catcher. If you ever want to practice, let me know. We soon became good friends and played baseball and football together through middle school and high school. I was very religious at the time, and during my senior year, started a noontime Youth for Christ club at my house, a block from the school. Kent was my right-hand man. Kent had a great smile, and I never heard him say a harsh word. He had a heavy schedule. In addition to school, athletics, and student government, Kent went to Nisi School several evenings a week to learn to speak and write Japanese and study Japanese culture and history. After high school, Kent, Bertha, and I went to different colleges. At our 10th reunion, we got together and compared notes. We all graduated from college and had good jobs. From then on, each reunion was like a homecoming, and we would catch up on each other's lives. The years passed quickly. In 2005, we had our 50th reunion. While none of us made a million dollars or became very important people, we all had successful lives. Kent became a minister. He started in a church in San Mateo in the same poor neighborhood where Lawrence Elementary was located. Later he moved to L.A., but now he's returned to San Mateo, working with impoverished families and a variety of ethnic groups. He still has that great smile I remember from the day I first met him. Bertha is retired. She became a nurse and worked with elementary school children for almost 40 years. Her knowledge of Spanish put her in great demand. It's ironic. She came here from the Philippines only speaking Spanish and Tagalog and spent a great part of her life acting as an interpreter for Spanish-speaking children from Mexico. I did a lot of things in my life and did some pretty well. I truly enjoyed what I did and who I am. I sometimes think of the effect that war had on all of us. It certainly could have destroyed Bertha, who nearly escaped death at the hands of the Japanese. Kent and his family, who as Japanese-Americans, were treated terribly by our government. They were confined for more than four years, all their property and possessions taken from them. Neither Kent nor Bertha let their early experiences destroy them. They are two of the finest people I know. The deprivation we experienced during the war helped me become stronger and gave me a sense of pride about my country and the peoples we helped all over the world. 
I'm afraid post-World War II generations don't understand this. We've had wars, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, but Americans have not been deprived. Except for those who serve and their families, war isn't real. It's theoretical and otherworldly. It is strange how the confluence of war brought three different lives and nationalities together. Three good friends, a Filipino whose country was subjugated by the Japanese, a Japanese-American who was interned by Americans, an American whose country was attacked by Japanese and was able to beat them to free the Filipinos. That was David Creighton reading his memoir, War's Confluence. The story traces three young people, Bertha, a native of the Philippines, Kent, a Japanese-American, and David, the author, each of whose native countries were involved in World War II, undoubtedly the greatest life-and-death struggle the world has ever seen. But since all three were attending an American school, a school which fortunately knew how to deal with a wide diversity of students from different races, creeds, and national origins, it taught all three of these children an abundance of such American values as tolerance and understanding. David's story takes pride in the fact that these three young people could accept and learn from each other. And when you think about it, That's really a wonderful tradition, isn't it? And now let's hear from our second author tonight, Gary Hill, who's reading a story he calls Hannah and the Magical Cuckoo Karoo. Hannah and the Magical Cuckoo-Karoo Hannah heard the cry and was startled. Cuckoo-Karoo! Cuckoo-Karoo! She had never heard such a cry in all of her nine years in their small village in Peru. She turned to her mother. Mama, did you hear that? What kind of bird makes that wonderful call? Her mother kept weaving her rug. What do you mean, Hannah? I heard nothing. But, Mama, it was so clear. How could you not hear? It cried out twice. Cuckoo-caroo! Cuckoo-caroo! Hannah's mother stopped weaving at once, saying, Dios mío, did you really hear it? See, Mama, it was very loud. What kind of bird was it? Ay, Hannah, said her mother, that was the magical cuckoo Not everyone can hear it, only special people. The cuckoo has not been heard since I was a child. The small Peruvian pueblo was near the great falls. 
that was the beginning of the Amazon River. Hannah's mother weaved beautiful rugs with patterns as old as the Incas. Hannah's father was a fisherman. Hannah often went fishing with her father, but stayed home that day because her father had gone to town to sell his fish. Hannah said her mother, Are you sure you heard the cuckoo cuckoo? You're not making this up. No, Mama, said Hannah. I heard the cry twice. What is so magic about this bird? Why is this special? Hannah's mother had stopped her work and looked at her daughter. The cuckoo is a beautiful golden bird, they say. I've never seen it, but they say it is large and flies like an eagle. When I was small, I thought I heard it too, two different times, but maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, I never heard it again. They say your grandmother also heard it. I don't know, but Hannah, it was such a wonderful cry that sometimes I can still hear it in my mind. Cuckoo-caroo, cuckoo-caroo. Ay, mama, said Hannah, that is exactly the sound it makes. Well, then, said her mother, the next time you hear that cry, you must follow the sound. They say the cuckoo-caroo comes to help the people. And when he comes, he drops a golden feather. If you catch that golden feather, Hannah, before it touches the ground, you can make one wish. But the wish must be for all the people in the Pueblo. After the wish, of course, the feather turns ugly and must be thrown away. Hannah was quiet for a moment. Then she told her mother, If the cuckoo comes again, I will follow it. And if it gives me a feather, I will help the people. Days passed, and Hannah watched the sky, listened for the cry. The entire Pueblo had heard the story by now, and they were all listening for the cuckoo Everyone wanted the golden feather. But days turned into weeks. Soon people began to make fun of Hannah. She was just making up a story to become important. She didn't hear anything. Hannah's father told her, It doesn't matter what people say. You heard what you heard. You must never stop listening and looking for the cuckoo They will believe you and stop laughing when you find the feather. It was two months after she first heard the cry. Hannah was helping her father put the fishing net in the boat when she heard the cry, Cuckoo-caroo! Hannah stopped once and whispered, Cuckoo-caroo! and took off running along the bank of the river. Her father watched in amazement and hope as Hannah ran as never before. It was almost as if her feet did not touch the ground. The other men who were fishing watched as well, not believing their eyes. 
because the girls seemed to fly almost. And when Nana's father cried out, Cuckoo, Cuckoo, all the other fishermen stopped their work and cried out too, Cuckoo, 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 Cuckoo. And the women in the pueblo heard the men cry, and they began to shout, Cuckoo, Cuckoo. Even the children began to shout, Cuckoo, Cuckoo. Hannah followed the cry of the magical bird, and the sound seemed to lift her off the ground. Then she felt a rush of air, heard the beat of wings, and saw the most fantastic bird in the world, the magnificent golden cuckoo The bird flew off. It was as if the sky had opened a door and the bird disappeared. As Hannah stopped running, she saw one golden feather floating down. She caught it in the air before it touched the earth. She kissed it, and she held it next to her face, and then turned back towards the pueblo. There was no one at her house, so she looked down by the river, and there was no one at the river, and that was very strange. Hannah then went to the town square to the church, and there she found the people. There must have been 30 people, all the pueblo, waiting and praying, even the priest. Her mother and father rushed out, and both of them hugged and kissed her. Hannah said to her father, You've been gone for eight hours. We've all been praying for you. Where have you been? Hannah did not understand. She had only been gone a few minutes. She just said, I followed the cuckoo and he gave me a feather. Hannah held up the feather. It glimmered in the sun, shining and enclosing Hannah in its wonderful golden glow. Someone said, it's a miracle. Another person said, and look at Hannah. She is glowing, too. And they all stood back. Then Carlita's father, who had laughed at Hannah, shouted, We have a wish. A people have a wish. Everyone began shouting, A wish! A wish! Finally, the priest got everyone to settle down and come back into the church. He brought Hannah up by the pulpit with him, and he let her sit in the big chair which was reserved for important visitors. The people could not keep quiet. They were so excited. They wanted money, riches, wishes, and wishes. Finally, the priest spoke loud enough to quiet everyone. Then he asked Hannah, Everyone wants something different, Hannah. What would you like to wish for? Hannah thought for a moment and then said, I would like to know the taste of ice cream. Everyone laughed. The priest smiled and said, But Hannah, this is a gift from God. The wish must be something for the entire Pueblo. Hannah answered, Well then, ice cream for everyone. The priest continued, What about a new water system, Hannah, with safe water to drink? 
or a sewage system for the pueblo, or good markets for fish and the beans and corn we grow. There are many things that would help the pueblo more than ice cream. Everyone finally agreed that the pueblo needed a safe water supply that went directly to the homes. And that should be their wish. For if they wished for money or gold, that would be greedy and something bad might happen. So Hannah brought her feather up to the pulpit, raised it up high and said, I wish for safe drinking water and ice cream. Nothing happened. A moment passed. Then the feather lost its golden color and seemed to wilt, growing brown, used, ugly. The people were angry. Even her mother and father were disappointed. Nothing happened the next day or the next week or the next month. The people thought Hannah ruined their wish with her ice cream. Several months passed. Then the priest received a letter from the United States of America from an organization called Water for People. Their engineers went to countries like Peru to help the small villagers develop safe drinking water. The priest and the villagers accepted the offer from Water for People. Soon, you could see men and women with light skin and blue eyes and strange straw-colored hair and working with the men of the Pueblo. They built a rock and gravel filter, a reservoir of concrete, and laid down white pipes to bring water to all the homes. The man who was the engineer in charge wore a tie, like wealthy people do. And when he came to Hannah's house, she looked at him very carefully. It isn't every day that you see someone with eyes the color of water and hair the color of corn. And when she looked at the engineer's tie, Hannah saw something shining like gold. She looked closer, and she almost fell down when she saw a tiny golden feather on the engineer's tie. Hannah showed her mother, and her mother's eyes grew big, too. Her mother asked the engineer, where did you get that golden feather? The engineer answered, you know, it is very strange. I was in my office in Colorado, going over a list of projects to do, and when I came to the project in your Pueblo, there was this little gold feather on the paper with the name of your Pueblo. I liked the feather so much I had it made into a tie pin. Hannah and her mother just looked at each other and they smiled. It was Hannah's wish for the Pueblo. And it had come true. The people no longer had to walk to the river to get their water. Now that they had a safe water system, that came right to their homes. But of course they said this wonderful thing had nothing to do with Hannah or the magical Kukukuru. They had water because they had worked for it, and that was that. 
The people no longer looked at Hannah and shook their heads. They had forgiven her by the time the water was piped to their homes. Some people even said that the Kukukuru was just a foolish legend and that Hannah had just ran away for many hours and made up a story. On that same day, however, that wonderful day, when Hannah's father went to the faucet at the side of the house, turned it on, and got fresh, safe water in a bucket, while the mother and daughter smiled with pride and appreciation, on that same day, something magical happened. Hannah thought she heard something in her room, something making a sound like a whispered cuckoo-caroo. She went into her room, and the first thing she did was to look under her shirt in the drawer where she kept a feather hidden. She knew she was supposed to throw the feather away, but she couldn't. And today, when she looked at the feather, it shone like gold just for a second, only a second. And Hannah didn't know if it had really shone or if her eyes were playing tricks on her. When the feather didn't change back, when the feather stayed a dull brown, Hannah put her shirt back over the poor dull feather and closed the drawer with disappointment. The whispered sound of the cuckoo kept echoing in her mind. Cuckoo-coo-roo, cuckoo-coo-roo. And as she closed the drawer, she saw, sitting on the top of her dresser, sitting right in front of her eyes, propped up by some books, the biggest, wildest, most colorful, wonderful, tin-scoop ice cream cone in the history of Peru. was Gary Hill reading Hannah and the Magical Cuckoo Karoo. Here we meet Hannah, who lives in a small Peruvian village. She's so blessed that she gets to hear what nobody else can, the call of the Magical Cuckoo Karoo. Not only that, she's even able to catch the magic golden feather. Thank goodness she wished for and got a safe water system for her village and was even treated to some scrumptious ice cream in the process. Friends, we've had both of tonight's authors on before. David Creighton used to be a member of the Board of Trustees of the State Center Community College District, which includes both Reedley and Fresno City College, and Gary Hill, whose profession was being a water engineer. Gary actually spent several years in foreign countries helping folks install safe, water systems for their communities. We want to thank both David Creighton and Gary Hill for their stories tonight and hope they're working on some brand new ones for us for next year. 
And so we come to the close of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to hear tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read story, just go online to kvpr.org and link up with archived audio. Next week, our writer-reader will be Bonnie Hearn Hill. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Writers Read.